What, in your opinion, makes for a great romance story? Is it the Disney version? Two wonderful people who just need destiny's nudge to point them toward one another and set them on a course for their happy ever after future? Or is it the more recently popular rebellious romance? Where two people, or even just one person, defies the rules, follows their dreams, and finds the life they've always dreamed of beyond the constraints of what society said was proper or possible. These are certainly more recent popularized ideals of the romance story, but it would be interesting to go back in time and compare our versions of romance with previous eras, would they have shared our value on self-expression, autonomy, the right to rebel, and the importance of a sentimental kind of happiness? This morning we open up an ancient romance story, which by all accounts does not immediately strike us as a romance at all. The book of Hosea. If you take the Bibles provided for you, if you don't happen to have one, you can find the passage we're going to be looking at starting on page 752. This is our second consecutive week looking through this book. Last week, we saw how God brought together a marriage between a man, Hosea, his prophet, and Gomer, his unfaithful wife, in order to demonstrate God's relationship with his faithless people, Israel. Through a human marriage, divorce, and then new marriage, God gives a picture of how he will show faithful love and mercy toward those who have not been faithful to him. Chapters 1 and 2, which we looked at last week, introduce the big themes of the book. The broad defining strokes on the canvas that now get more detail added in in the rest of the chapters. Chapter 3 through 14. That God will pursue his people and make a new forever covenant of love with them is established by his promise. But how God will do this is yet to be seen. This is a romance. It's a love story. You remember the image in chapter 2 verse 14 of God wooing his people. Remember the forever love story he's writing in chapter 2, verse 19? But this will likely be to us a strange romance. Instead of exalting human self-expression and rebellion, instead of platforming the priority of the individual like modern romances do, this romance requires rescue from our rebellion against the God who loves us. The lover, God, disciplines the one he loves in order to put them on a path towards the eternal life of love with him. Hosea, in God's love story with anyone he chooses to love, is a romance by redemption. And that's the first big thing we see in chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. Here we see first big observation, God's plan to redeem. 
So follow along as I read chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or be, belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is now the second time that God tells Hosea to go after Gomer, though she has already cheated on him several times. Hosea had divorced her, was done with her. But in order to show God's commitment to love through our unfaithfulness, God tells Hosea to marry Gomer again. But before he can marry her, Hosea must redeem her. Gomer has given herself away to another man. Like Gomer, Israel had traded her faithful husband, God, for a relationship with other nations and gods that they thought would fulfill their every physical desire. So to get Gomer out of this, Hosea pays for her release. He pays to redeem her. God's overarching plan is there in verse 5. A wonderful life, a vision of life together with God under God's king. A reality marked by God's goodness to his people and his people's faithfulness back to him. A community that truly wants to follow God and know him and not wander away from him. But the plan begins with the people who don't want that. And don't want to pursue that. And even if they did, they're locked into an enslavement arrangement with sin. Before God intervenes, our sin owns us. We are rebels and we cannot be other than rebels. We are on our own pursuing our own dreams and desires and that pursuit kills us. To get us to the goal of the good and forever life in God's love, God pays to purchase us. And the price he pays is his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, Mark 10, 45, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He laid down his life. Paying the penalty of the just wrath we deserve to pay before God because of our sin. Jesus paid that payment. He took that wrath. He died so that we could live. Jesus was the redemption price for our rescue. Our sin that deserves such a payment is obviously very great. But such a payment as the Son of God laying down his life for us, is surely sufficient to redeem us. After buying Gomer back, Hosea tells her it's time for her to make a full turn. No more cheating. It's time to be faithful. 
And God tells his people that his redemption is the beginning of a path that will end at eternal life. Yet there are waypoints on this path. There are things God will do in between his initial rescue and the final destination. Verse 4, he lays those out. Do you notice that? For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Things that sound more to us like discipline than romance. But God's love goes beyond our understanding, doesn't it? And by his way, his discipline results in our salvation. His romance happens as he leads us down redemption's road. Which is what we'll spend the rest of our time thinking about. Second big observation. Thing to see. God's redemption path. God's redemption path. Now, we're not going to be able to read all of chapter 4 through 6, verse 3. We'll just be taking some of the things out of it and focusing on them. I encourage you to go back and read through it if you haven't gotten a chance to yet. But we'll be looking at that section in this point. Redemption is a one-time payment God makes to free us from sin. And at that point, he starts a full-time process to bring us into his presence forever. Every one of us is somewhere on this road right now. Some of us are still married to our life of rebellion against God. Others are awake to our need for Jesus and his sacrifice to atone for our sins. And we stand under the covering of his blood. Some are wrestling against competing desires to serve God or serve ourselves. At times, others of us are feeling heavy under the hand of God's dealings with us. And others are knowing the joyful freedom in the Lord right now. As we see in God's strange romance in Hosea, all these experiences happen along the road to knowing God's redemption. So long as they all lead us to know God and not turn away from him entirely. There are three major sections in this part of God's love story, chapter 4 through 6, what I will call waypoints on God's redemption road. The first one is the starting point. The starting point. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord is a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. And no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. This is the starting point. God calls and says, stop. You're going the wrong way. Disobedience to God's law, love for other things more than him, commitments that rank above God in our lives. This is not the way to get to redemption's end. This is the wrong way to death. And that's exactly what's happened in Israel as a result. As God's foundational commands that were written on stone tablets are broken, people die. 
Creation dies. So who is to blame? Whose fault is it that we've all taken this wrong turn and ended up rushing headlong into eternal death without the intervention of God? It's each of us. It's all of us. Chapter 4, verse 4. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse. For with you is my contention. And then he begins a litany of accusations. But notice God starts with the all-encompassing category and then breaks it down. And he begins with the religious leaders, the priests, in verse 4 through 19. For with you is my contention, verse 4, O priest. You shall stumble by day, and the prophet shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The very people who claim to be bringing the rest of the people to God through their job of making sacrifices for the people's sins, those people, God says, are misleading everybody. Why? Because they don't know God. And so the people they lead don't know God either. Let's just pause and remember that the size of a ministry platform, the popularity of a preacher, are not reasons to follow a person's life. Seminary students, you won't get to heaven by being known through your online presence, the collection of books you own or write but by knowing God. Follow people, no matter how unknown they may be in evangelicalism, who help you know God. Now, the religious leaders are obviously to blame for Israel's path away from God, but so were the political rulers, the kings. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I'll discipline all of them. Then down to verse 10. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. So these rulers in Israel were tasked to lead according to God's laws. God meant, as he does for all authority and people in High position it means for judgments and actions taken by authorities to serve as mirrors to God's character. Unfortunately, the kings of Israel actually legalized idol worship. Their way of living didn't help people know God, but became an obstacle to people knowing God. Look at chapter 5, verse 4. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. We all live under authority, and that in and of itself is a good thing for all of us. We all have people in our lives who have some kind of influence by virtue of their position over us. I'm not saying they all use it well. People use power for a myriad of different reasons. Sadly, very few may be acting in the interest of others with their authority, but that happens from time to time. People use authority well. And for the cynics among us, We should remember that it is possible because of God's grace for authority to be exercised in a good way. But then again, authority figures might not. 
Rulers might simply pander to give people what the people want or press people down to get what they themselves want. In Israel's case, the kings were not trustworthy guides to God. They were to blame for turning the people to the wrong way. But that's not where God's contention stops. He finally and ultimately blames the people of Israel themselves. They are the ones who have actually followed the priests and kings in the sin. And so they are responsible actors as well. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. So what do we learn from all this? Well, there are many people in our lives who can either lead us to God or mislead us. Who can encourage us to worship God or discourage us. Who serve as examples of the Christian life or distractions. God remind us here, reminds us here that there is no neutral actor. We are all influencing and influenced. We are all signposts towards God's redemption or personal guides in the opposite direction. Which are you? And who are you following? Be someone who knows God. And models your life after others who know God. You may say, Philip, that is exactly what I want. But I'm not sure I know how to do that. Well, maybe this will help. Know God by knowing God's word. That's where God shows himself most clearly. And when you're deep in his word, you will know how best to describe God to your own heart and to others. What he's like, what he does, how he loves. So know God by knowing his word, but know God by knowing God's spirit too. The spirit enables us to think with wisdom, to lead people to the God who leads us. And know God by knowing God's son, Jesus. Talk to him. He is a person, living, active, who dwells in our hearts by faith. Talk to him. Talk about him. Love him. Depend on him. Church, God has made himself known to us in himself. Through the Father, Son, and Spirit. All of us can know God like this. We don't need a priest. We all are priests in this way. And we can all minister to each other out of this personal knowledge of God. And as we do, as we heed God's warnings of the danger that awaits those who forget him, we will help people to go in the opposite way, in the way of God's redemption. So that's the first waypoint on this redemption road. God's warning. God's warning. To anyone who doesn't know him, that the path, if unhindered, leads to death. The second waypoint of the three on God's redemption road is what I'll call the turning point. The turning point. This is the place where we actually stop going away from God. When he arrests our attention and our stubbornness yields to his spirit and we leave behind sin and follow God. Now. In our romantic ideals, we might like to think this happens through some self-inspired moment of our making. 
where God runs halfway across the flowery meadow to us with open arms, and we with equal delight and joy run across the other half to him. Or that we've not actually been marching away from God at all. We just took a little nap. And all we need is God to give us a, a gentle nudge, a little shake, and we wake up and keep going toward him like we've always done. Is this how we turn? Is this how you turned? No. The reality is we don't turn without God turning us. And we aren't so naturally predisposed to God that all we need is a gentle nudge in the right direction. The turning point from the wrong way of rebellion to the right way toward redemption is get ready for it. God's discipline. As you go through God's dealings with Israel in these chapters, there are so many words that indicate he is acting to show Israel the consequence of their infidelity. Chapter 4, verse 6. I reject you from being a a priest to me. 4, verse 9. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. 5, verse 2. I will discipline all of them. 5, verse 10. I will pour out my wrath like water. 5, verse 14. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. Some of this acting of God is very active. And some of it is more passive. Where he leaves people to reap what they sowed. Chapter 4, verse 14. Where he describes the children being left to the sins of the fathers. Or they stumble in their own guilt. Chapter 5, verse 5. Or they're oppressed and crushed in judgment because they were determined to go after filth. Chapter 5, verse 11. So from these verses, it's clear that God either actively or passively is always in the seat of control. He's the standard and the consequence of attempting to remove him from the controlling position is to invite a world of hurt. This is not just because God in his holiness repays people for the grave evil of turning our back on him, although he does. It's also because there's no life outside of God. So when you move away from God who orders and gives life, that way naturally leads to chaos and destruction. Now before we draw our own conclusions about what we've just heard and maybe the the harshness with which it lands on our ear, let's remember the the context in which all of this is happening. God has already paid the redemption price. He is in the process of leading his unfaithful wife to a life of forever love with him. So his active and his passive discipline is how he loves us. How he leads us. Now, Were we not so stubborn? Perhaps we'd not need so strong a hand. Were we always inclined to seek him? Perhaps we would not need to at times for him to withdraw his face. Remind us that without his son, our worlds go dark. But I know you, and you know me, and we know our hearts, and like little children, we need correction. And God in perfect love administers it for our good, as we've already heard from Hebrews 12. One other thing to remember 
There's a big difference between God disciplining us in this life and God destroying us eternally. As we'll see next time, God doesn't exercise his wrath to the fullest, but promises to make a way for Israel to come through the judgment of exile into a new reality of life with God in God's place through God's son. So how do we know we're under God's discipline? Well, I'd say in a way we're not, we're never not being disciplined by God. Discipline isn't just for our correction, it's for our formation. So sometimes he brings trials that have nothing to do with our sin. Because going through something hard helps us trust him more. And maybe that's what God is teaching you right now. Other times we experience hurt, pain, or loss. Because we gave our heart and love to something that isn't God. And then God in his love removes that thing. Maybe that's what God is doing in your life right now. And sometimes God withdraws for a season to remind us that there's no life outside of him. That money doesn't give life. That sex doesn't bring absolute fulfillment. That friends can't be your foundation. And that work won't bring eternal meaning. Maybe that's how God is disciplining you right now. The purpose of God's redemption, God's discipline on this redemption road is to turn us to him. He means by his discipline for you and me to come to a turning point. By discipling us in discipline, God keeps us from reaching the point of no return. The journey on this big picture view of God's redemption road that has a starting point and a turning point, as we'll see in a minute, the ending point. This seems very linear, you know, from point A to point B, just straight line. God makes us, we sin, he sends Christ to redeem us, his spirit leads us, we follow Jesus in this until we live with Jesus in the life to come. Very straightforward. But when we come down to the ground level of our life, the path we often take, well, is often less consistently in the forward direction. We follow and then we turn. And then God disciplines and then we follow again, and then we turn again, and God turns us back. Isn't God so patient? And at each turning away and turning back, we are responding to God's discipline by repenting. That's how we turn. Hopefully over the course of our Christians' lives, we will turn more quickly as we get older. That our hearts will grow softer and less stubborn. That the rebuke of a friend or the caution of God's word more immediately will grab our attention when it comes. That our own awareness of our propensity to turn makes us thankful and humble with anyone who would venture to help us turn back to God. But God has purposes in discipline, both for the hellbound sinner and the turned around saint. Repentance is how we know we are traveling the redemption road in the right direction. 
It's not just a series of intermittent points we cross along the way. Repentance and turning to trust in Christ, our salvation, is the very way we walk. And discipline from God leads us in that way. So Christian here, take this week to better better acquaint yourself with God's loving purpose in disciplining you. Take Hebrews 12 and ask the spirit to give you a heart that welcomes his love to you in this way. Get together with some other Christian to pray for this. And pray for our church to always be a repenting church that responds well to God's discipline. So we've seen the starting point on the redemption road. We've seen the turning point. The final waypoint is the destination. What I'll call the end point. Where God's redemption road is headed. Look at chapter 6. Let me read verse 1 through 3. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. God purchases a faithless people. He calls them in love to turn from their unfaithfulness. And he brings his discipline to cause us to awaken to our sin and turn to him. And then he sets us on the path that leads to resurrection life. Verse 3 is the, is the kind of conclusion we expect from a good romance. The sturdy farmer toils through a famine in the end. The rain comes and his crops are saved and he and his family live happily ever after. Verse 1 to 2, not so much. The lover allows the object of his love to be wounded. The lover actually inflicts the wound. The beloved one dies. They walk through the pain and darkness of death before seeing the light of life. I hope you can see how clearly this gets fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ. As God sends his son to be our deliverance, but to inflict his very own son with a payment we deserve to pay. So that he could bring us life. So listen to me. You can die and still live. The hand of God's discipline will at times allow this. And the love of God will lead you through this. There are all kinds of suffering and pain we may know in this life. And some of it will happen because of our sin. Some will happen because we live in a broken world. Our lives may physically end because of some addiction unmastered, some mental anguish that never subsided, some warning unheeded. But even in this, God can raise us up. How do I know this? 
Because Christ has died with all our sins on his shoulders. All the world's brokenness on his back. And all that brings suffering laid in on his spirit. And three days later, as Hosea prophesied, Christ rose from the grave. There is no physical remedy, no solution to our bodily and mental ailments that will heal the mortal wounds of our souls. For redemption to be fully accomplished, we must die in and with Christ. And even though we die, yet shall we live. Our flesh will bleed out. Our organs will fail under the demands of sin's penalty. But the blood of Christ shed will be the fountain from which springs our new and eternal life with him. Here is the great mystery and comfort for the Christian on redemption's road. Your resurrection is already as good as done. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 through 6 says that we are already raised with Christ. Christ is raised. So for all his redeemed, our resurrection is accomplished, but not yet completed. That's the direction we're headed. The starting point was Christ's sacrifice to ransom us and God's gracious call to turn us. The continuous discipline of God ensures we keep turning back to God. The end point is when we go through death and we emerge from the grave healed completely from all the mortal wounds of our sin. Never again to sin, never again to die. So if you're going the right way, do not stop. Press on to know God. Do not give in to the temptation that you know enough of God to get you the rest of the way. If you're weary, God's plan to resurrect you. Let it bring you new joy and strength even today in your weariness. And see God's provision of his people around you. To help you persevere. Hosea 6 verse 3 speaks to the whole church of Christ redeemed. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. The redemption road is not just you. It's packed full of people. People God has redeemed through Jesus. In this place and in this time, it's packed with these people. Put together with you for us to walk together. So let's learn God together. Let's lean on God together. Let's turn from sin together. Let's steer each other away from the danger of hard hearts. Let's repent when we're apart. And let's repent when we're gathered. Remind the discouraged and weary of God's love. Rehearse the promises of the hope of resurrection life. Even when we lose a brother in death. If you look at the end of this romance story, we get a parting note to the reader that says this in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 9. Whoever is wise, 
Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Who of us would have planned such a love story? Who naturally would have understood it? For our hearing, for our understanding, for our living, Hosea presents to us the romance of God's redemption. God loves through the death of his son, the discipline of his children, so that we might live a life of forever love with him. Are you part of that story? Are you on redemption's road? Is Christ your redeemer? Is repentance your way of life? If not, begin today. And if so, press on. The resurrected Christ is just ahead. Beyond death, he waits to welcome us into eternal life. Let's pray. So, Father, having heard your call to return, to turn, to see the price paid for our sin, to see the ransom made to free us from slavery, Lord, we we turn again and see Christ crucified and raised and risen and reigning, and we set our hope on him. Help us to keep turning and returning to you, O Lord. Help us to submit ourselves gratefully to your discipline when it comes, even if it's there now. Help us to respond in humility and gratitude and turn us to you, for we know that in you are the ways of life. God, rescue anyone hell-bound. Open their eyes to Jesus even today. And help us to be a people that press on together to know you. Help us to know you more. God, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for Christ who stepped out of a grave. We thank you that he is our conquering king, that in him the hope of the world securely rests, as does ours. Lord, as you unfold your will in our life, we pray that you would help us to see that it's right and that it leads to a good end. We rejoice in your love, and we rest in it today. In Jesus' name, amen.